One, two, one, two, three, four. Josie and the Podcasts. Kia ora. My name is Maria Lewis and I'm the host of Josie and the Podcasts, a six-part limited podcast series about the 2001 cult classic Josie and the Pussycats. And I'm producer Blake Howard and welcome to the very first, very special bonus episode of Josie and the Podcasts. Bonus! Love a bonus. Our first episode history was all about the unlikely path Josie and the Pussycats took as an Archie Comics spin-off property. There's a World War II romance, the civil rights movement in America in the 60s, robots in space, basically a lot of stuff you don't want to miss out on. So we highly recommend going back and checking it out if you missed it. So in a similar vein to talking about history and comics and pop culture and prejudice and how those things can intermingle in really interesting ways, a bonus ep is historical too. This is all about how Archie broke the comics code. Damn right he did. <laughs> so to refresh, Archie comics really rose to prominence in the 40s as the creation of Bob Montana, whose real life experiences inspire much of those early stories, and publisher John L. Goldwater. We flagged that last fella in the first episode, saying that we would get to him in a bit, and that was only kind of a lie because comic book historian and author Tim Hanley is going to get to him for us. John L. Goldwater is OG John Goldwater. He's the guy that started what was MLJ Comics in the 30s. Uh, His son Richard took over in 83. He died in 2008 or 2009, and then his brother Jonathan also John's son took over from there but everyone calls Jonathan Goldwater John Goldwater just without the H that's a lot of Goldwater also this is something important to note Tim's forthcoming book and he has several is called Betty and Veronica Riverdale's Leading Ladies I've read an early proof of the manuscript and to say Tim knows his shit is truly an understatement I think the big difference between the two is that Richard came up through the company so like John L. Goldwater started it Richard worked at Archie once he was old enough to work and like was an editor and worked behind the scenes before he eventually took over. So he was really um, connected to his father's vision for the company, which was like a very conservative, wholesome kind of take on Archie. Like, I don't know if you guys know, Archie did like evangelical Christian comics in the 70s. They licensed out the characters. Yeah, it was a whole thing in the 70s. And that's kind of like the vibe of the company. John L. Goldwater was huge behind the comics code in the 50s to like restrict content and make comics as, as friendly, family friendly as possible. Like the code is basically Archie's in-house code with a few tweaks and uh, John L. Goldwater was the chairman for I think over 20 years. Um, so Richard kind of carried that on in a lot of ways. He also kind of co-ran the company with Lewis Silverclight's son. Silverclight was also one of the original founders. So between the two of them, they were both, and he also came up with through the company. So they're both very connected to their father's vision. Now we're getting to the meat of it because the comics code is important. And if you think you don't know what it is, think again. It's at the opening of one of the greatest superhero movies of all time, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And as that game-changing opener is starting to roll, one of the things that appears and got a knowing chuckle in our screening of the movie was a stamp that reads, approved by the Comics Code Authority, with a weird little A glowing in the middle. 
Before we can talk about how Archie broke the comics code, we first need to talk about what the comics code was. And it's a long bendy fucker, but in summary, it was cooked. Brought in in 1954, it was voluntary. Now, you can't see me, but I'm using sarcastic air quotes right now. But if publishers didn't submit their books to the Comics Code Authority, they didn't get that aforementioned sticker thingy on the front of their books. And it could seriously impact whether advertisers decided to advertise inside their comics or not. So it was important from a business perspective, but its whole existence was largely due to fear-mongering which kicked up after Frederick Wortham's book, Seduction of the Innocent, which came out the same year the code was introduced. I'll spare you the read, but the gist of it was that comics are evil, they're corrupting the innocent, and creating juvenile delinquents. Shame. Shame. It seems wild in hindsight, given that comics are one of the most inventive and boundary-pushing mediums today, but in 1954, the whole entertainment industry was being governed by conservative codes designed to protect the moral fibre of the American people. The comics code was based on the worst of them all, the Hayes Code, which had been suffocating the motion picture industry for the past 20 years and seen groundbreaking filmmakers like one of my personal faves, Dorothy Arzner, an openly queer filmmaker who had made openly feminist films and was the only female director during Hollywood's golden age, pushed out of the business altogether and into early retirement. My name is Chelsea O'Brien and I am an assistant curator at Acme in Melbourne and I am really interested in early cinema history. For those playing at home, ACME is the Australian Centre for Moving Image, based in Melbourne, Australia, and it's the most visited moving image museum in the world, showcasing film, television, video games, digital culture, art, and much more. And when Chelsea says she's interested in early cinema history, that's putting it lightly. She has an encyclopedic knowledge of everything from zoetropes and praxinoscopes to magic lantern slides like their everyday household objects. Anyway... Back to the Hayes Code, which sucks. So the Motion Picture Production Code was commonly known as the Hayes Code after William H. Hayes. He was the president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distribution Distributors of America at the time. So the Hayes Code was this self-imposed industry set of guidelines for all the motion pictures that were released between 1934 and 1968. The code prohibited profanity, suggestive nudity, graphic violence, sexual pervasions, and rape. It had rules around use of crime, costume, dance, religion, national sentiment, and morality. And according to the code, even within the limits of pure love or married love, certain facts have been universally regarded by lawmakers as outside the limits of of safe presentation. So basically this means that we have a whole lot of married couples sleeping in separate beds in Hollywood for at least 20 years. By the time it got to the late 60s, 1968 to be precise, the Hayes Code hadn't properly been enforced for years and it was replaced by the MPAA rating system, which has its own issues and is still used today. The code was extreme and it came in reaction to some key events in the industry following the turn of the century. Here's Chelsea again. Well, Hollywood in the 1920s is like a super racy time Films were beginning to kind of mature, you know, they were dealing with adult content, they were sort of racy and projected images of women in, you know, power and making their own choices. There was off-screen stories of drug and alcohol, partying and overindulgence. 
And then the industry was rocked by sort of really huge scandals, namely the death of Olive Thomas, the murder of William Desmond Taylor, and the alleged rape of Virginia Rapay by popular movie star Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. So all of these things brought really widespread condemnation from religious, civic and political organisations, and many felt that the movie industry was really morally questionable. So there was all this political pressure. And I mean, I think with the Hayes Code, one of the things that the film industry just sort of assumed is that its audience was white and straight, and white straight males, really. So they would do things that would appeal to that audience base. So things like anything that was going to be questioning women's sexuality or women's sexual preference or even men's sexual preference, there was this real return to sort of traditional values. And a little bit of that is because, you know, we're coming out of the Depression, we're coming out of World War One. so there's this general sort of American sentiment that's returning to sort of conservatism and things like that. It was a particularly difficult time for horror comics, romance comics, a lot of genre comics which went underground. Even mainstream comics struggled to stay as wholesome as necessary, like Wonder Woman! So Wonder Woman had started as this really progressive, groundbreaking comic for the time when it debuted in 1941, which had a big part to do with its creator, Professor William Marston, inventor of the lie detector test, and the polyamorous relationship he was in with two feminist women, his wife, Elizabeth Marston, and spouse, Olive Byrne, who provided input into the character, such as the matriarchal themes, and having her wear a skirt in those early issues because fighting in a skirt was totally impractical. But by the 50s, 60s and 70s, to pass the comics code, a lot of those progressive elements had regressed. And, well, personally, they're some of the worst storylines in Wonder Woman's nearly 80-year-plus history. But you know what title wasn't struggling? Archie. Here's Alex Segura, co-president of Archie Comics. I think when I was younger and I first got into Archie, all you had were the classic stories, which are very family-friendly, they're funny, they're, you know kind of sly humor, but at a certain point as you get older, at least for me as a boy, you want to read more action-oriented stuff, and Archie didn't have that then. You know, they had, it was just, you got the classic stuff, and, and then you moved on, and I moved on to like Spider-Man, or X-Men, or Superman, or what have you. Um, but now as a brand, Archie kind of runs the spectrum. You know, we have edgy noir stuff like Riverdale, we have horror stuff like Jughead the Hunger, we have superheroes like the Black Hood, and um, so I feel like now, today, if, if a fan were to tap into the early classic stuff and get into that, there would then be a bridge to the next thing, which isn't to say you can only read Archie, you know, obviously uh, all boats rise, but I think that variety of content is there now, and that's allowed the brand to continue and stay vibrant. And also part of it is, I think for a point there, maybe in the 90s, early 90s, late 80s, Archie felt very stuck in place, you know, very much frozen in time. Uh, you, you got the sense that the stories were in a in a Pleasantville type era as opposed to today. Um, and when our current CEO John Goldwater took over, he made it a point to say, you know, these stories have to seem like they're happening in the real world. You know, we have to have diversity. We have to feel, you know, not so much huge conflict, but a sense of modernity. Like this is happening now, not in the 50s. And I think that really resonated with people. And you see that in the stories. Like, you can tell a classic Archie story that's funny and entertaining. It doesn't have to feel like it's retro. 
By the time we get to the 90s, the comics code is becoming less and less relevant. Marvel stopped following the code in 2001 with other publishers beginning to jump ship and abandon it as well. By the time a new decade hit in 2010, there was only a trio of bigwigs still adhering to it. Bongo Comics, DC Comics, and you guessed it, Archie Comics. And as Tim Hanley explains, the clock was tick, tick, ticking on that. They got new management in uh, like 2008, 2009. Um, the sons of two of the original founders ran Archie until they passed away, one in 2008, one in 2009. And then John L. Goldwater, he was like the original Archie guy, his other son took over and was much more open to new ideas. Yeah, late 2000s, they both die. And I think there was like kind of a scramble to find who's going to run the company now. And so they bring in Jonathan Goldwater, who really didn't work at Archie. He was, I forget what else he did, but it was, I think it was entertainment adjacent, but not, he wasn't like steeped in the company. And he came in and was like, you guys are kind of stuck right now. You've been doing the same thing for a while and it's not, it worked for a long time, but it, it wasn't working at this stage. The They really had no presence in like comic shops relative to other publishers, the uh, newsstand uh, supermarket stuff was starting to, to falter a bit. So he was like, I think he came in with like a respect for what Archie is, but like coming in from the outside of it, he quickly realized this is not sustainable anymore. We need to mix things up. That's how we got um, stuff like the married life when Archie proposed it to Veronica and then to Betty. And there's like these alternating timelines. Um, Afterlife with Archie, the horror comic uh, Kevin Keller, their first gay character, all that kind of stuff comes under John Goldwater taking over and really opening up what kind of stuff Archie does from the traditional fair they kind of been mired in, I guess would be the word for the last several decades. If you want to get Shakespearean with it, um, Archie basically killed the comics code. This was under John because to do Afterlife with Archie, very not the code, it wouldn't have been approved. And so when Archie finally decided we're just we're not going to do the code anymore, it killed the code for everybody. Other publishers were kind of moving away from it, but like Archie stepping back and saying, even in our regular books, we don't need it anymore. It's kind of the the death of the code across the industry. It just disappeared and was no more. Just all of a sudden, because Archie, the last like stronghold of family values in the comic book industry, decided to to pull out of it. And that was that was John Goldwater. And yeah, they've since expanded into things that would make the original John Goldwater spin in his grave, I'm sure. Like the creators at Archie had kind of been pushing for this for some time and met resistance from Richard. Like Dan Parent, who created Kevin Keller, had been pushing for a, a gay character for years. And under uh, Richard and the other Silver Clay, they're like, no, no, this is too much controversy for Archie Comics. We're not going to do it. And then John comes in, was like, yeah, we should absolutely do it. And like, I think maybe a year or two after John's there, they've got Kevin Keller in the mix and they're doing all these, these cool new things. By January 2011, this pillar of wholesome conservative America up until that point, Archie, broke with the comics code. Bongo and DC Comics did too. And after that... Hasta la vista, baby. With Archie Afterlife, the brand enters into a new era and reinvents not only an iconic character, but reinvents an iconic brand. That's, well, it's something that's rarely done successfully, let alone done well. 
Archie Afterlife takes readers in a whole new, unexpected direction, incorporating elements of horror, science fiction, romance, exploitation, action, and all the best parts of speculative fiction, in my personal opinion. It's this new era that gives us Riverdale, which is a colossal hit, then the chilling adventures of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and now the Katie Keene show. Archie is more popular than ever, thanks, in part, to its breaking of the comics code. And according to Alex... It's just the beginning. I think you'll continue to see the brand diversify and stay vibrant and do different things. Um, you know, the TV stuff has been great in terms of awareness. Like people just are so tapped into what Archie is doing, which is huge. And the comics, I think we're continuing to show that as long as we're true to these characters and they are who the fans think they are, I mean, you can put them anywhere. I mean, Archie can fight a zombie apocalypse. Jughead can become a werewolf. Uh, you know, you know, we've got we've actually got a really fun twisty take on Josie coming soon that we'll be able to say more as it gets closer. But you know, we can take these characters and as long as we write them and treat them with respect and treat them like what fans expect in terms of personality and how they behave, you can put them anywhere. And that's I think where you're seeing a lot of response. You're seeing it from like nostalgic fans who like to see different takes on these characters, and you're seeing it from new fans who like the twist. And then they kind of get brought into the idea like of these characters and they fall in love with the characters and then kind of dive into the mythos, which is great. You'd think that perhaps this edgy new direction would ostracize some of Archie's traditional audience. But according to the biggest expert I know on the subject, that's not the case at all. Here's Lynn Montana, daughter of Archie creator Bob Montana. And now, of course, with the Netflix show Riverdale, yeah, that's a whole nother metamorphosis of Archie where... Um, you know, it's got an Archie on the dark side, and although it's extremely different from what my father created, um, I can understand why it's popular today, and I can understand why the parent company uh, has chosen to go that way, because um, they were mostly responsible for the comic book, whereas my father was responsible for the cartoon strip. And, you know, I just wanted to say that this new millennial, the millennium of people that are the millennials that are watching Riverdale, I, I do hope that um, they will take the time to maybe go on Amazon and see the books that are there of my dad's original artwork for the comic strip, because that that was very uh, different from the comic books. Um, the comic books were written by a number of bullpen artists, you know, that were just hired to do comic books and piecemeal of it. And um, But my dad's strip was... Actually, I think... I, I've always felt it was written for the adults. And a lot of his gags and jokes in the comic books, in the comic strip the newspaper strip, which is what he did for 35 years, basically. Um, you know, you, you had to be an adult to really get some of the jokes. <laughs> um, because the adults were the ones that bought the newspapers and read the newspapers. Not that kids couldn't enjoy them, but he wrote them for an, for an older audience to enjoy them as well. They weren't as geared for 13-year-olds like the comic book. Coming up on the next episode of Josie and the Podcats, development. How exactly is Hollywood going to revitalize an Archie Comics property loaded with so much pop cultural history? There's lawsuits, there's outer space, a Betty and Veronica movie shepherded by Harvey Weinstein that thankfully got lost in development hell and 
an audition from Beyonce. Oh my God, are you fucking insane? Beyonce, Beyonce, Beyonce. Be sure to subscribe to this show so you're the first to know about all the upcoming episodes and some bonus ones. If you like this, de jour means chuck us a rating and review to help other people find the show as well. And this episode of Josie and the Podcasts was researched, written, and presented by me, Maria Lewis. And produced by me, Blake Howard. Our podcast artwork was done by the talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at ai.me.me or via email at amy, A-I-M-E-E dot read, R-E-I-D, 0310 at gmail.com. And our jerkin theme is courtesy of Amanda Wilkinson of Bossy Love and Edwin Organ with Bossy Love's new album, Me Plus You, out now. A lot of our guests are hugely talented in their own right and have impressive bodies of work like authors Tim Hanley and the awesome Alex Segura. And you can find links to their work in the show notes of this episode. Also, big thanks to Lynn Montana and the whole Montana family for allowing us access to their family photos and archives. And if you know someone who's hearing impaired and would enjoy this show, written versions of every episode, including the bonus apps, are available online. The link is in our show notes. Until next time, who's a rock star? Josie in the Podcast. This very special bonus episode of Josie and the Podcast this week is brought to you by another One Heat Minute production, All the President's Minutes. We are up to episode 28 of the 1976 masterpiece directed by Alan J. Pakula, written by William Goldman in his Oscar-winning screenplay and lensed by the incredible Prince of Darkness, Gordon Willis. This week, I am talking to the incredible Dario Linares um, for episode 28. He is the co-host of the Cinematologist podcast, a really, really excellent podcast that is a nexus between sort of academia and 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 theories about film as well as a sort of more mainstream populist criticism. He and I dive deep on this wonderful minute. So jump on board on that and uh, continue listening. We'll catch you on the very next episode of Josie and the Podcasts soon. <laughs>